Good morning. Uh, we are now on Lesson 12, The Messiah's Kingdom, Part 2, uh, where last week we described the physical changes that will occur to the land during the Messianic Kingdom. Uh, this lesson is going to emphasize the spiritual dimension of the kingdom. So our first division we'll be looking at is called the Return of the Messiah. Um, some uh, Bible scholars use a picture of um, a, a prophet looking like at a range of mountains, and you could kind of imagine his vision hitting the peak of this mountain and the peak of the mountain behind in the same general direction. And this might be the first peak is Christ's first coming, and then the second peak sometime distant is his second coming, but seeing them as one event. And the reason we use that picture is in the Old Testament we don't always uh, find that it doesn't distinguish between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Um, many of the Old Testament prophets wrote about both events. They didn't realize that there was an extended time period between uh, the Lord's first earthly ministry, which ended with his death and his return to the Father, and his future earthly minister, which ministry, which is going to uh, begin with the establishment of his kingdom. But um, they, the prophets wrote about the Christ's suffering and glory, but they couldn't reconcile the twin truths in their minds. Isaiah, like many of the other prophets, intertwined the two truths without clearly distinguishing between them. And so if you get your Bibles and open up to Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, and I'm going to be reading here out of the uh, New American Standard Bible, and uh, we're going to see that as uh, I go grab my Bible, and we'll be right back. So, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And as I read this, I want you to tell me which parts of this passage are referring to Christ's first coming and which are referring to his second. So i got three verses. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what he, uh, starting again, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. So, which verses, guys? I think you'll find that the 13 and 15 are talking about his second coming, and right smack in the middle of that you've got 14 that is definitely referring to his first coming. And from other passages, we're going to see that we learn that the Messianic Kingdom is going to begin at Christ's return to earth after the tribulation. Now, if you want to look that up, that's in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Isaiah does not write 
about the second coming, but he does prophesy a lot about what the Lord's reign will be like after his return. And considering some of the events that are going to accompany the establishment of the kingdom. So let's start looking at those in pieces. Um, the first one is the reckoning of the living. consider one of the first things that we see when the Messiah returns is a reckoning of the living. And I think it's pretty obvious that we will find that only believers will enter the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom. Daniel predicted that the saints uh, of uh, the Holy One uh, will, will possess the Kingdom and uh, and they will possess the kingdom forever and ever, or for the for the age of ages. Um, that's Daniel uh, seven eighteen. Now, what that verse is saying is that God is going to judge and destroy the unsaved before the kingdom begins. There aren't going to be any unsaved before the kingdom. Isaiah predicted the Messiah would proclaim the day of vengeance of our. God. That's in Isaiah 61, uh, the second part of uh, the second verse. Now, when we previously were looking at that verse, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the first part, 2a, we find that when Jesus was preaching in Nazareth uh, during his first coming, he told the people that the scriptures were being fulfilled. But when we talked about that, he did not include the second part about the, the day of vengeance of our God. And the reason he didn't include the day of vengeance portion is that that part had simply not been fulfilled at his first coming. Vengeance or judgment uh, is going to occur at his second coming. There will be separate judgments for the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's look at that first part about the judgment of the Jews. Ezekiel um, 20, 33-38 predicts a judgment of Israel in the wilderness in which Christ will purge the rebels. Isaiah doesn't give the details of this judgment, but assumes a judgment that will leave only the repentant to enter the kingdom. Not only will the Messiah proclaim the day of vengeance, but he will also comfort all that mourn uh, to appoint those who mourn in Zion, and to give them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now that's starting there in 61 verse 2b and 3. Righteousness is that key word. It describes the spiritual condition that is going to prevail during the millennium. We also see Isaiah 34 as a prophecy of the judgment of the Gentiles. So let's look at Isaiah 34, 1 and 2. And I will turn to that as you join with me. I'll give you a second to find it. Isaiah 34, 1 and 2.
So while I'm reading this passage, Isaiah 34, 1 and 2, I want you to think about how these verses describe the judgment on the Gentiles. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's, the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. But he has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Yeah, you're right. Uh, it's saying that God is going to judge all the nations, and he's going to lead them to destruction. Joel 3, 1-17, and Matthew 25, 31-46 further describe this idea of this judgment, a judgment based on the Gentiles' treatment of Israel. Matthew wrote that God will usher these righteous, and in his passage referencing sheep, Gentiles, into the kingdom. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 um, is a similar passage to that same idea. Isaiah also wrote that Egypt and Assyria will have a place in the Messiah's kingdom. We see that in 1924 and 25. And the prophet Zechariah specifically mentions that Egypt as worshiping in Jerusalem. Now, if you'll jump with me, we're going to uh, jump ahead to Isaiah um, 63, the first six verses. And while we get there, I'm going to give you a second to find that. And we'll be right back together again. So we're looking at Isaiah uh, 63, 1 through 6, and let's read that together. Who is this who comes from Edom, with garments of glowing colors from Borza? Who is the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? and your garments like one who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now a couple questions to think about. How is Christ's judgment of the Gentiles pictured in this passage? Well, he's talking about um, walking as if he was in a wine press, uh, that he has literally mashed down on them like a person mashing down on grapes, and that resultant juice of the grapes has splashed up on his clothes, just as if their blood has splashed on his garments. The other question is, why is trampling grapes a good illustration of God's wrath? 
well, I, it may be fairly simplistic, but I think the 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 juice trapped within the skin of the grape, it it's containing it, but then it is released is is like God's wrath being contained and then released at this time. Revelation um, nineteen eleven through twenty one presents this judgment as a victorious warrior um, leading his troops uh, against the armies of the world. Isaiah, in a really long passage, starting in chapter 12 all the way through 23, predicts the judgment of many of the Gentiles nations around Israel. So we, we see a promise of a Gentile um, judgment as well as a, a Jewish judgment. Um, so, as we segue into the next part, we're going to see us looking at the regeneration of Israel. So give me a minute to grab my notes and we'll be right back. Okay, so our next section is talking about the regeneration of Israel. And in this... Uh, we are looking backwards and we see that we talked about the judgments. And in all the judgments, we see that God is judging the unrighteous, but will allow the saved to enter the kingdom. Remember that salvation comes uh, to those who look to God. Isaiah 45.22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. We're going to also read together Isaiah 44, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 24 uh, about a beautiful promise of forgiveness. And I get my eye down on that, 22 through 24 of Isaiah 44. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And Israel, he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am maker of all things, stretching out heavens by myself and spreading out the earths all alone. So I'll give you a couple seconds to think about, but I want you to kind of think about that. And what picture does God use to demonstrate his forgiveness of Israel in this passage that we just looked at? What, what do we see as um, to demonstrate the forgiveness? Well, we see that where he's talking about removing it as a thick cloud, their transgressions. There's a very vivid picture that this cloud has covered them over and he has removed it and brought the light of the day to, to them. And what is the mood of the passage? Well, I think the mood sounds jubilant from, from heaven above to 
under the ground to the very mountains themselves to the forests are all excited about this uh, regeneration of Israel. In Isaiah 35.10, the prophet wrote concerning the ransomed who will inhabit the kingdom. Israel will also be called the redeemed of the Lord in Isaiah 62.12. Isaiah used the term ransom and redeemed. Um, when he does use those terms, he refers to the price that Christ paid on the cross when he bore the iniquities of us all. That's, you know, we see that, looked at that a couple lessons ago. That's 53.6. Israel will someday recognize that Jesus is indeed their Messiah and their offering for sin. Uh, This redemptive is a work of God. And we see that in 43.1. 4525 and 5920. We're going to look next at the reign of the Messiah. We'll look at the political conditions, the structure of government, the subjects in the government, and the strength of the government uh, to see what kind of leader he is. Um, Then um, we'll look at the economic conditions and the preservation and spiritual conditions of life. So, um, we'll be right back in just a moment. So the reign of the Messiah, um, does have political conditions. The nature of the government of the Messiah's kingdom is embodied within its name. The Messiah will rule. Um, If you look with me to Isaiah chapter 9, and we start uh, partway through verse 6, and we've looked at this before, but it says, And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and the throne of David and his kingdom, to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore. The Lord of the zeal of hosts will accomplish this. Um, So, we're looking at what's the structure of his government going to be like. Uh, we understand that th- this passage indicates that the Lord Jesus is going to be the head of the government during the Millennial Kingdom. He's going to be king. Uh, during the first uh, arrival, uh, his first arrival, many of the Jewish people thought that as Messiah he would be a warrior king. Um, and that wasn't his attempt the first time, but you see him coming back and being recognized here as king. And he is going to administer through an organizational type structure. Uh, the Lord apparently is going to make David somehow a regent. We see that in Isaiah 55, 3 and 4. And other saints are going to rule with him. We see that in Matthew 19.28 and Revelation 2.27, 3.21, 20, and verses 4 and 6 of chapter 20. 
The Messiah is going to have judges and princes who are going to assist him. We see that in Isaiah 1.26 and 32.1. Although Isaiah doesn't mention it, I think Christ is going to resurrect the church saints and the tribulation martyrs to um, reign with him. Now, that's kind of the structure. There's going to be people working under him, um, and then there are going to be the subjects during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, there is some type of national distinction, um, because we had said earlier that these places, uh, as we said earlier, Egypt and Assyria and uh, Egypt are all mentioned being in Jerusalem during the Messianic Kingdom. So we're seeing national distinctions, but Israel is going to be uh, the world's most favored nation as opposed to its probably most hated nation status that it's in the world today. Uh, because the Messiah will rule as king, Israel is no longer going to live in fear of, of a foreign invasion. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to defend her. And we see that promised in Isaiah 33, 17 through 22. Now according to Isaiah 14, 1, God is going to include the Gentiles in the kingdom. Uh, as servants of Israel. And we see that as 49, 22, and 23, and 61, verse 5. Egypt and Assyria, as I mentioned, will have a place in the kingdom, but will be subjects uh, to Israel. So what's the strength of the government going to be like? Well, the strength of the government is all going to be tied to its leader, the Messiah. He is going to rule with a rod of iron. And we see that promised in Psalm 2, 9 and Isaiah 11, 3 through 5. Um, now, because God is going to destroy the enemy and Christ will rule absolutely, universal peace is going to be part of the kingdom. It's going to follow that. As we said in that passage we read in 9, 6, the Messiah, uh, Isaiah called him the Prince of Peace. And he shall judge among the nation, and shall rebuke many peoples, and they will not, and they will beat swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war any more. We have got passages upon passages that talk about the peace that's going to come during the messianic kingdom. We find that in Micah 4.3, Isaiah 32.17 and 18, Isaiah 54.13, Isaiah 55.12, Isaiah 60.18, and Isaiah 66.12. If you want to take the time, you can write, write those up and look them up. Prosperity is going to also follow the peace, which is going to help sustain the government. Unrest and poverty contribute to the overthrow of governments, but since those conditions aren't going to be present, the, the Messiah's kingdom is going to be very strong. Now, let's look at one particular verse, Isaiah 9. Of course, there we go. Thank you, Electron. And Isaiah 9, 7. Uh, 
we're looking at uh, what is the strengths of Isaiah's kingdom, and there will be no increase to the uh, to his government or his peace, and on the de the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. We really see here that. Uh, uh, when we're talking about the strength of the kingdom, um, it's described, you know, right there that there is going to be no increase uh, of the government or of peace, and it's all coming about because the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of Hosts, is going to accomplish it. Uh, it is an everlasting promise God has given us uh, as God's people to guarantee an everlasting kingdom. Not only do we see it here in chapter 9, but we also see it in Isaiah 51, 6 through 8, Isaiah 55, 13, Isaiah 60, 19, and 20, and 61, verse 8. And we're going to come back in just a second and talk about the economic conditions, uh, both for the laborer and for the land. Um, and see how that looks in our upcoming Messianic Kingdom. So in the Messianic Kingdom we're asking the question, what's the economic conditions going to be like? I think many countries today um, face an uphill struggle government overspending, conflict priorities among their leaders, labor struggles contribute to the problem. It's when man uses human reasoning and social engineering and we try to make things better and we just keep making things worse. Um, and when we change political administrations, we seldom get results for long-term solutions. But during the millennium, when Jesus Christ is reigning, his government is going to produce a perfectly healthy economy. And the first thing we're going to look at is the performance of the laborer, the worker. In times in past, in times of repression, conquering nations often made the conquered or the subdued people provide food for them. Uh, during the days of Gideon, uh, the Midianites confiscated whatever Israel grew. And if you remember the story of Midian, uh, or Gideon, um, he was threshing wheat in a wine press to avoid having it be seen. That's in Judges 6, 1 through 6, if you want to look that up. Under communist rule, uh, Russia skimmed off the best of the nations it controlled. However, under the Messiah's rule, it's not going to be that way. And if you want to see that in print, look with me to Isaiah 62, and we're going to go verses 8 and 9. And I'll read those here. It says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies. Nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it and will eat it pray and praise the Lord, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God says 
those days where somebody else is going to take it away from you, what you have earned, what you have have uh, worked for, the sweat of your brow is going to benefit you, not somebody else. Um, labor will not be in vain, and children are not going to be born into a life of poverty. That's kind of a summary of, of uh, Isaiah's passage here in, in 65, 21 through 23. Now we will see, it seems, that the Messiah's rule is going to have an effect even on the physical environment. We talked about last week how um, the land will be unusually productive and the parched land of Israel will blossom uh, like a rose. And Isaiah promises that in Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. The Lord is going to restore the rains that he has withheld because of his people's sin. And the booming agricultural production is going to result in a very vigorous economy. And that we see in Isaiah 30, 23 through 26. Today, many parts of the world face starvation because of war, drought, and mismanagement. But during the millennium, there will be no lack of food and therefore no starvation. Um, I really wish I could have an interactive portion here because uh, one of the discussion questions that uh, our lesson kind of involved was having learners who had grown up in extreme poverty, um, if possible, consider sharing what it was like to struggle not being certain where their next meal was coming from. And those who know me know that... Uh, I never missed a meal, so I would not be one to comment on that. But we also see a last thing is that the preservation of life. And when we're talking about the economic conditions. And it's right now in the midst of this coronavirus, health care is a hot topic. And along with health care, the cost of health care. Many people can't afford decent health care. They can't afford the insurance. They can't afford the co-pays. They can't afford um, what it means to um, survive, you know, survive and have decent health care. Um, and health care in many third world countries is almost non-existent. But during the millennia, people will live long lives and very healthy lives. Christ will heal the diseases. If you want to jot down some more verses and look them up this week as you spend some time thinking of this lesson, it's 33, 24, 29, 17 through 19, and 35, 3 through 6. We've already mentioned that food is going to be plentiful and wars are not take their toll. The curse of sin is going to be gone. Um, we will see that God is going to... Pers uh, uh, Extend life supernaturally, I guess. It, there's this quote in 6520 talking about that there'll be no more uh, infant of days or an old man that has not fulfilled his days. There's no more early premature children not making it to adulthood and no more is an old man going to die before the completion of all his days. <clears throat> God is going to preserve life supernaturally. We can also see that in... 41, 8 through 14, and 62, 8, and 9.
We're going to come back here in just a second and look at the final spiritual conditions of the Messiah's kingdom. Uh, we'll be right back. So, what are our spiritual conditions going to be like in the Messianic Kingdom? I think today most of us would agree that wickedness is the ruler on earth today. But during the millennium, however, righteousness and godliness will characterize his people. So, the first thing we see is the attributes of God are manifested in his subjects. During the millennium, the Messiah followers will reflect his characteristics. Um, this likeness will be more than just mimicking of some popular figure. It's going to result from a spiritual change caused by God's work of redemption. The people of the kingdom will be righteous, and we see that promised in 9-7, 60-21, and 26-2. Not only will they be righteous, but they will be holy. And then, because of that, we will see an adoration of God maintained by his subjects. Um, though Throughout the millennium, um, people are going to worship God in Zion. Isaiah 2.3 states it beautifully, and I love the way the King James says it. I don't normally use it, but here it fits so well. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion will go forth the law, and the word of the Lord of Jerusalem. There shall be unified worship. We will all come together and worship the Lord together. And that truth passage is unto me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. We're seeing in 45.23 in Isaiah and also a similar passage, 27.13. Prayer has always been an important part of every believer's life. Um... But will it be necessary in the millennial kingdom when the Lord is present to meet all our needs? But we see in Isaiah that surprisingly the believers will still pray. And he has a wonderful prayer promise to encourage us. Go with me to Isaiah 65, 24. I'll give you a second to get there. So, Isaiah 65, 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, before they pray, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. You know, that's the promise for those who pray during the millennium, is that while you're still praying, God will hear. While you're speaking, He will answer. God has given many prayer promises to us today, um, but when people pray during the millennium, uh, 
that uh, he has promised to answer and hear. And that just gives us even a greater need for believers to be praying today. I'll give you a couple thoughts to close on today before we give you the invitation into next week. But a couple things I want you to take some time and jot down some ideas. The first one is, what really excites you most about the Millennial Kingdom? There's no right or wrong answer, but I want you to put it down about what are you anticipating uh, the, the Millennial Kingdom? What is it that you're looking forward to? And the second question goes along with that is, it's about preparation. How should the fact of the Millennial Kingdom's reality, the promise of its coming, affect our lives today? So we have anticipation. What are we looking forward to? Making some notes on your paper. And preparation. What should we be doing differently today? Preparing ourselves, preparing our friends, preparing our families for the Millennial Kingdom. Next week we're going to start our final lesson in this um, Sunday School lesson series on the Messiah. And that's his invitation to salvation. And I just want to give you a kickoff is that uh, God extends that universal offer for free salvation to anyone who will accept it. This salvation is based on the work of the Messiah, as we've seen, who is going to extend the invitation not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile. We will see in the lesson that while man's efforts to save himself bring only dissatisfaction, but God's salvation can bring both peace and joy. I pray for each of you um, that are listening to this lesson. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you or being together again next week. And uh, may God richly bless you. Thank you and see you later.